Hello everyone and welcome to Changing Conversations with me, Billy Burke. And me, Sarah Philp. We're really glad you've joined us on this podcast. This podcast is all about changing conversation. Conversation is one of the oldest ways to nurture the conditions for growth and improvement. We come alive when we talk about what's important to us and it's this that has the potential to guide us into new and different ways of being and offer the potential for great things. In this podcast, we want to explore the big questions and the small questions. It's a place for thinking and conversations that hold the potential for change. You will hear from us as well as some of our guests. We would love to hear from you and for you to get involved. You can also follow us on Twitter at Changing Conversations. Welcome everyone to Changing Conversations, to episode 23, where Sarah and I are delighted to be joined this evening by Professor Kate Wall from Strathclyde University. Hello, Kate. Hello. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, Busy, busy day, busy Monday. Busy Monday, all day on Zoom. I don't leave this, this space here all day. This is me. Oh, um, I hope you get some breaks for going out a walk, etc. School runs. School runs. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's great that you could join us for the podcast this evening. Would you mind starting just by outlining um, who you are and what you do? Okay. Um, well, I'm a professor of education at the University of Strathclyde. I've been in Scotland for five years this December, moved up from the northeast of England, um, where I was at Newcastle and then Durham universities before that. Um, I've been in the university sector for 20 years now um, and um, before that I was a primary school teacher. Um, it's a good job this is not good vision so you won't see it, I'd show my age. Um, it, feels, it doesn't feel that long since I was in the classroom to be honest, yeah. obviously it is. Um, it was the fuel strike when I moved up from the southwest of England to the north to the northeast. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, long time ago. Um, but I'm, I, I still have my roots in the classroom. I still am proud that I'm a teacher. Um, I still feel that I'm connected to teachers. And I hope that my work is sitting on a bridge between the university and school. Um, I always want what I do to be relevant and useful. And, and one of the key words I'll keep on coming back to, I'm sure, is, is whether it's useful. If it's not useful, then what a what are we doing it for? It's got to, it's got to be help tackle issues in the classroom. Um, and I know that link can be quite tangible sometimes and, and, and difficult to pick out, but it still has to always come back to student outcomes and improving what's going on in the classroom for, for kids. Yeah, and, and that became really clear to me when we first met that I approached you to come and do some work with uh, my staff around an area of, of real interest for you and, and expertise. Um, in terms of practitioner inquiry, which is something that we've been um, engaging in for, for a while in my school. So I suppose just before lockdown, we, we welcomed you in for the in-service day back in February. Um, and what struck me from the session that day and the feedback that I got, Kate, was how you, you've taken a concept like practitioner inquiry, which can, and I suppose like most things in education, things can be misunderstood. Um, and, and you made it really real and vibrant for us that day. So if we get into that particular area, what, what would you, how would you describe practitioner inquiry? What is it? What is it not? 
Um, for me, practice to inquiry is is a type of research. Um, it, it, and, I, and I don't want to hide the fact that it is research. It, it, it is research. But I do think too often it gets caught up in um, research, theoretical debates around research and um, and some quite university based thinking about research and it loses its practice orientation. So it is a, a practice orientated type of research. Now that's not to say that it's not complicated and I've got doctorate students doing practitioner inquiry at a D or PhD level. So I would like to get away from the idea that it's, it's not clever or it's, it's, not, it's lesser. It, it, that's certainly not the case. But it is about that exploration of the complexities of what goes on in classrooms every day. Um, good teachers will constantly be driven to ask questions about what goes on in their classrooms. So that might be uh, things like, what happened there? You know, <laughs> why didn't that work the way I thought it would? Or why yep. did that thing work for that group of children and not that group of children? What was happening when I changed the way that I did X, Y, or Z? Um, multiple questions can arise from one learning exchange. Huge numbers of questions can arise from one lesson and one day of lessons and a career of lessons. Um, that's a huge number of questions. Now, inquiry is not about answering all those questions. Most good teachers will answer most of those questions as part of their normal practice. Practice to inquiry is about turning up the volume on some of those questions that are most relevant, useful um, to them to explore in a bit more depth. And that might be because it makes your life easier. Um, it might be because it links into the school development plan. It might be because it's part of your promoted post to explore that thing. Or it might just be because you saw someone talk and you thought, oh, that's really relevant and important. I'll, I'll go find out a bit more about that. Yeah. And so if you're asking questions, if you're trying to find out the answer, the, the move to research is a relatively easy, quick step. But what happens quite often with practitioner inquiry and what puts a lot of people off is the volume is turned up to the max on research and we forget about the practice that it's orientated to explore. And it becomes more important than the practice. It becomes, um, yeah, the, the priority becomes the research process. And, and, I, and I think that we need to go back and it, it's about linking it into the practice and something that is helpful you, for you to do. I and mean, one of my mantras is, is that if you're doing this practice inquiry on a Sunday afternoon and you're not enjoying it, scale it back, turn the volume down because that's not meant to be happening unless you're having fun. If you're having fun, carry on. But if, but if you're not enjoying it and you're resenting it, then, then you need to turn it down and you need to calm down and, and refocus on what does it want to know. And, and the evidence that you can collect without adding to your list of things to do. Mm. So I suppose there's some answers in there about what, what it is. What are the common misconceptions then? So I think common misconceptions are around it being university-based research. It's not me coming in and researching your context. I would get completely different answers to you. Um, it's, it's not about 
a one-off project. Um, it can be a one-off, but it, but in your learning journey, it is a cumulative development over time um, that won't stop, you know, as a, as a teacher. And, and as I said, I'm a teacher that's been out of the classroom for 20 years, but I am still practice for inquiry. I'm still asking questions about my practice. Um, when faced with a group of students or faced with a situation like a podcast, I learn something new um, and, and will question what I did do, what I didn't do and how I, how I would do it differently next time. Um, for me, that doesn't stop. And, and so I think one of the issues with the project orientation is that it, I can do practice inquiry and then I can stop and move on, mm. that, I, that, it's, that it's finished. Um, I think we have to tackle that quite head on um, the idea that when you leave probation in your probation course and you've done your project and you've um, presented it to the local authority and your peers, then mm. I've done practitioner inquiry. Nope, yeah. that's that. Or when I get promoted to head teacher, I've done. I don't do practitioner inquiry anymore because I'm not. I'm not in the classroom anymore. No, mm. I don't agree with that either. Yeah, me it, too. It's it's part of being a teacher. It's part part of it. I mean, it's questioning what you're doing and looking for evidence to answer that question yeah in a and very what, simple way yeah what what worked what didn't work and i and I'm, I'm, I'm a bit reluctant to use those terms because i think they've been hijacked in some ways the, the what yeah. worked agenda um steve higgins um who's my colleague at durham he talked about the what worked agenda because it was always what worked in teaching we know that lesson that you did with s2 on Monday, you have a different group of S2s on Thursday, teach the same lesson and it doesn't work in the same way or, you know, and so there's always time to, to think about it and, and, and teaching is a dynamic profession. Society's changing, education's changing, and particularly in the last eight months. And so therefore, how we tackle those problems will always have to be read about, even if we do the same lesson every year, every November the 16th, that's the lesson we roll out. It will have to be different. It should be different because the kids will be different. You'll be different. Um, it's yeah, changing. Yeah, that's a really useful way to to think about it. So, what would what would you say to a teacher who hasn't engaged in practitioner inquiry yet? Because you know, time, I suppose, at the moment in particular is hard to come by and, and valuable. But I know how passionate you are about the benefits that it can bring. So, what what are the key benefits for practitioners? The key benefits are of, of addressing student need. Um, some the thing I say to, to teachers is who are want to, interested in practitioner inquiry or even those who are not um, is is what 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 do the students in your class need? What is what is the the prompt the the problem that's got you most bothered at the moment? It could be about a whole group of children. It could be about one. I mean, I often use the quite flippant example of. Can I solve the problem of Beverly on a Friday afternoon? If I can solve that and, and sort it out, then it will make a huge difference for Bev Beverly. It will make a huge difference for me as the teacher, um, but it will also make a difference for the class around as we go into the weekend. Um, so it could be one, one person, it could be um, the whole year group, it could be the whole school, depending on your remit. Um, and, and so what what's the problem that, that's, bothering you and is it Beverly's attention is it Beverly's ability to concentrate is it Beverly's home life and what she's going back to at the weekend is it Beverly's attitude to your subject area is it is it the people that's around Beverly <laughs> you know what 
So let's start focusing on that. And then if we um, then, then think about, well, what does it look like if Beverly, if we solve this problem? So I use the language of success criteria, which the teachers are really familiar with, you know, to close your eyes. And what does it look like in your best, best version of Beverly on a Friday afternoon? What, what can you see happening? What, and, and therefore, what evidence can you collect to see if that's happening? Um, so that you can start looking for an answer that is totally related to that topic, to that problem that you're trying to solve. Don't think about what you think you should collect. Don't think about what some researcher in the university might collect if they had, you know, optimum amount of time. It's about well, what is going to satisfy you that you have an answer. Um, because in the end, that's the most important thing. It's about you being confident that you have an answer to that problem. Now, is it the right answer to the problem? Probably not. It'll be part of an answer, but again, good teachers know that we are constantly changing. And even if we solve it for Beverly one Friday afternoon, we might be back to square one the following Friday afternoon because something else has happened and the, new, and the problem is slightly different, but that's okay. We had one answer, we can find another one next time. And that's part of the resilience of being a teacher. I love that. <laughs> I love that with Beverly. I think that's a really helpful way of framing it for, for people and making it come alive and make it making it become real and possible, I think. Um, I think that one of the issues with practice and crisis, people think they have to do it with the whole school. So they have these scientific methods in their head about size is best, generalizability, yeah. you know, <clears throat> all these res research concepts, which are important and they're useful, but not when you're focusing on practice and when you're the teacher focusing on a class of 30 and not, and there are equally valid and useful research methodologies that can focus on a case study of one. I've examined PhDs that are a case study of one child. It's size of sample is not a marker of quality. So focusing on Beverly is, is, is valid. If, that's, if that helps you and that's useful, then that's, that's, that's a good thing to do. Yeah, and I'm sure lots of people will be able to relate to that and connect to that idea. You, you said earlier that um, the step from practice to research um, can be quite easy. What about the step the other way from research to practice? Because I think often that can be a challenge. Uh, and you mentioned the word bridge in your in when you when you started talking earlier on as well about your work being a bridge. And I think often there's a challenge in bridging from research to to practice. And how do we access and how do we make it usable in the context of practice? And I'm just interested in what advice do you have or what have you seen that has worked well in helping to bridge that gap? So I think that um, <clears throat> once teachers start, so if, if you look at the literature on um, teachers as researchers, then there are two types. There's, there's engaging in research, in doing the process of research and engaging with research. So reading other researchers' work. Um, and, and I think they are, they work in synergy and I definitely see a, um, a reinforcing cycle there, which actually is really well developed in Scotland um, in terms of teachers willingness to engage with research. And that makes it more likely they will do a bit of research themselves because it means that they're questioning practice. And then, uh, but I think we have to recognize that there can be a practitioner inquiry that is literature based. Mm -hmm. We don't often talk about that. We have a push towards empirical 
Um, but that, that literature search, that literature-based research is just as valid for answering your practitioner inquiry or, or finding an answer. Yeah. Um, and Elaine Hall argues that you need to move between the two, actually. Mm -hmm. You need to do a focused um, research in your classroom and then take a look above the parapet and see what other people are doing and engage with the research and see what else the people have done. Um, and then you can go back in and do something different maybe and, and, and make a change or uh, explore something more empirically. Um, I think that's quite helpful to think about. And then you are connecting both parts of that, of that um, research agenda. I think in terms of how you make it more likely, then we need <clears throat> more understanding of, um, of the research world. So, and that's people like me being better at communicating what we do and codifying how our research is useful. So in the university, there is now a thing called the impact agenda, and we are judged more and more on how impactful our research is. And I think there are colleagues of mine who are better and some who are worse at this. Mm -hmm. um, and some will be impacting on policy and but others of us are, are focusing on practice and, and how that, how what we do um, should be useful again. Mm -hmm. But how we do that comes down to the language that we use. It comes out to the terminology. Um, we love big words in the university. Um, never happier than when we've got a five, six syllable word to shout about. Um, and, um, and that's, but that's not being clever. That, that's, that's the terminology we have time to deal with. And if it's useful, then, then go for it, but it's not what makes good research. So it's about finding access points in. Now, what I think is really interesting, so um, as a teacher researcher, I was researching my class um, year mm -hmm. four in, down in Bath, and um, this is the first part of my PhD, and I was using visual methods as part of my... Now, this was my teacher intuition mm -hmm. that my class of year fours were who a big chunk of whom really struggled with literacy and if I gave them a literacy based task as part of my research they were not going to respond in a way that was valid if you know using the research term because mm -hmm. they, they wouldn't be able to and it would turn them off very very quickly and we wouldn't get much further than that so and um, so I did a visual questionnaire I did a visual prompt um and I think that actually in education research, we are pushing the vanguard of creative and visual methods into the university. Now, teachers don't hear that and don't see it very often, that actually their pedagogical knowledge of what works in the classroom is much more advanced in many ways than a lot of the researchers who are stuck on interviews and questionnaires and observations. Um, I mean, early years practitioners are observation ninjas. We could learn a huge amount from them about how to do observations in a, um, in, in a subtle and um, not influential way. But I, so, so in terms of how I would bridge, I think that teachers need to, to realise that their strategies for things like assessment are a measure, are a, a are evidence, they are research if used in a strategic and clear way to answer their questions. So rather than thinking that they have to do a questionnaire for it to be proper, 
that they have to do interviews for it to be proper or they have to do then they can start thinking about the evidence that they use every day in their in their classroom settings and that opens up a dialogue backwards and forwards but they need to start reading about those creative methods they need to start reading about those um more interpretivist research techniques um, that we use in education research. The dominant um, language of research that they hear is evaluation and impact and intervention, which is one type of research. And it's actually the lesser done mm -hmm. in the academic education research community. There's a lot fewer scientific positivist researchers in education departments around the country than there are interpretivist case study, exploratory, creative methods. But that message is not getting through to teachers particularly. And I think we need to get better at that. And so because that pushes practitioner inquiries into thinking, oh, I've got to do a questionnaire of with a sample of a thousand. It's like, <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> but that, that, that's some hidden, there's some messages there about what makes good research that we need to get over. Yeah. What's been your biggest learning on the on the kind of journey of educational research <clears throat> to trust my teacher instincts you know that they're not bad they're not lesser they're not they're, they're they're equal to my research instincts um i think one of the things that i offer both in the research community and the pedagogical community is the fact that i have this brain that crosses over and, and combines the two. I mean, it is that bridge that we started talking about. It is what's in my head. The two things have to connect. And for research to be doable in the classroom for teachers, then I've got to be able to talk about some of these high fluting ideas that I also have um, in a way that is accessible and doesn't turn people off. But similarly, teachers are predominantly postgraduate educated. They need to see what they're also capable of and be brave in entering some of my world and um, and see the potential of what's there. And that's without dismissing their own mm. knowledge and understanding. And how would you like to see things evolve over time? Um, I hope that um, the conversations, I, my favourite thing to do is work in schools and work with teachers. Um, I, I, I find it refreshing and I see the evolution of practitioner inquiry in practice settings it's where teacher i mean i'm in the the relatively unique position where i can um be a conduit for that practice and share it across settings about what you know but i would never tell a school how to do practitioner inquiry mm -hmm. i don't know your culture i don't know your context i don't know your challenges i don't know that your students needs i've got lots of ideas but i i can't tell you how to do it but i can give you some examples um, I hope that what we will set up at some point soon, and that um, it starts with a question conference was the start of it, is some kind of inquiry based community across Scotland, mm -hmm. where we can not share answers, because that's mm -hmm. not what I think uh, um, it should be. And there are plenty of networks, to be honest, across Scotland that share and deliver stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but it's an inquiry community where we ask the big, big questions about what makes an inquiry community, what what's working for different people, and 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 we have we see the teachers as the as the as the learners and and their needs 
So we start addressing those and collecting evidence and, and sharing practice. So the kind of communities I'm seeing in schools, I, I would like to set that up across Scotland so that the schools can learn from each other. Because I know that there's some really interesting stuff going on in Arbroath. I know there's some really interesting stuff going on in the outskirts of Edinburgh. I know there's some really interesting stuff going on in Glasgow. Not the same, very different models, drawing in different connections and different emphasis, depending on the communities and the schools, culture and, 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 and school development flat plans and their, their objectives and their communities that they serve. But they could learn from each other and, and, and it will probably prompt more questions for them to try something different. So it needs to be an inquiry community rather than a stuff network. I think there's a lot of those. Yeah. You know what I mean when I say stuff network. Stuff network sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> a good Scottish term. The connectedness is a theme actually that's run through quite a quite a few of our podcast episodes. And I think we in the in the way that we are communicating tonight on Zoom, it's it's easier it's now more than ever to connect over distance. So I'm sure that is something that, that you'll be able to get off the ground because there is an appetite for teacher learning, as you put it a few moments ago. So if I can dig into that a little bit, called many things, I suppose, right at the start of your career where you'll, you'll get initial, initial teacher education or teacher training. So I've got the word training. We spoke for many years about how we would go on a course and CPD, mm -hmm. now we call it career long professional learning. So it, it's evolved across your career, Kate, no doubt. What have you observed and what would you hope for teacher professional learning from, you know, going forward from 2021 onwards? So one of the reasons I moved to Scotland was partly to get my, and I think I said this when I was doing the insert, it was to get my son out of the, um, the education system in England That's because right. I couldn't bear to, as a primary teacher, I couldn't bear to watch him being tested yeah, um, yeah. in a way that he was completely overt about. Um, and he would have been, um, but it was also because I was um, examiner, um, external examiner for the fourth year BA research project that they do on the primary course at Strathclyde. And I was seeing the kind of topics and the model of learning that was being shown to these and, and demonstrated by, by these trainees teachers. Um, and the support they were getting in the schools and, and the kind of, and that made me think, and it was at a time when England was pretty bleak and practitioner inquiry was not something that was supported particularly, it was seen as a luxury. Yep. Um, and that's what I love to do. Um, so I saw an opportunity to come to Scotland and be involved in a, a, a community where people are promoting a different model of professional learning. Um, mm. I think the um, promotion of inquiry and practitioner inquiry alongside career-long professional learning is, is a really positive one and is one that I sign up to. You know, this, this idea that it doesn't stop, that you keep going, that the, it's going to be cumulative over time. Expertise doesn't necessarily come with age. It, you know, you, you see NQTs, you see students in the university who have expertise. Um, and but that that is relatively contextual and it can change um and we all are daft sometimes and make mistakes and and being honest about what doesn't work and yeah. and yeah I, i'm always saying i'm a bit of an expert having questions um <laughs> i don't know if i've got all the answers so 
I think that what I want is in, and what I'm enjoying in those five years since I moved up is is that community of very engaged, quite politically aware practitioners who are striving for the best thing for their learners. And that for me is professional learning. You know, it's got to be connected to that, that the student need. It's got to be relatively autonomous and 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 decide and and for you to decide what you're interested in, but it has to be also connected and a community of people that are willing to share. And I know that it's not a utopia across the country. Um, and I know that there are some people that are struggling with that, but I do believe that the networks are there, the communities are there behind the scenes that, to support teachers in that learning journey over time. And quite right that as postgraduate professionals, there should be that level of autonomy rather than um, pick, you know, pick from a course on a Wednesday evening that you're going to go and you're going to be trained in something. Yeah. Um, it, it, I suppose that it fits with the empowerment agenda whether or not you, you agree or like the word of empowerment, the, the idea is about giving people ownership. Um, and, and, and trust. And trust, absolutely. I mean, another part of my work is student voice. Um, and for me, many of the best student voice projects are where teachers have trusted the children to respond authentically, to rise to the occasion, to do something um, that they weren't expecting and have allowed that space for that to happen. Well, a similar thing happens in professional learning. If you trust teachers, if you allow the space and give and, and the agency, um, and then that is much more likely to reap dividends than telling people how to do, controlling it and tightening up everything. Um, and that's why I do think leaders should be practitioner inquirers. Our, our school leaders should be practitioner inquirers because it's an incredibly powerful leadership model to say, I haven't got all the questions. I haven't got all the answers. You know, I'm still struggling with stuff. I still don't know. Um, we need more of that. But I'm aware that in times of change, like at the minute, you know, the tendency is to tighten up and to close down and to batten the hatches. And well, I, hope not. I suppose, yeah, if, if I went into school tomorrow and said that I was going to rip up the COVID risk assessment and do some inquiry into what might be effective in keeping us safe. That that might not be the time and place for it, um, but it's about what what aspect, what questions are you asking? The leaders have questions, surely. We do um, every day in our own practice in school improvement, school effectiveness. And um, the, what interests me is tightening the networks, as you mentioned, because, um, you know, school and Renfrewshire School in Aberdeenshire, we've got similar challenges and, uh, you know, working together towards the solutions makes makes sense. Or finding out that someone else has had a go at solving that problem that you're bothered by and and, and hearing whether that worked or not and and, yep. and and then being critical about whether that, that comes across or, trans, or does it transfer um, exactly or do you need to tinker with it to put it into rem you know it, it's it's about that that sort of but that's the professional autonomy you know I, it's not about taking an idea and replicating it yeah but also importantly for for my team when you met with them back in february you were really clear that at the, the end of the process isn't a day that's agreed in june where we all present to each other or create a poster that that can be a useful tool but it doesn't have to be 
No, I, I think that a commitment to share is really important. Yeah. What you share should be up to you. Um, and, and, and it's again, it's about what's useful for you to share. But I think that again, we, at the moment, one of the misconceptions about practice to inquiry is that it's all about output. It's about the end product. It's about sharing the poster. <laughs> um, Scotland has got a fetish with posters. When in doubt, make it a poster. Um, and I, I'm not against posters, but I don't think they are the be all and end all. And they also create an awful lot of work on a Sunday afternoon, which we're not trying to do. Um, faffing with formatting. Um, but sharing the process is equally important. Um, and so there was an interesting school I was working with um, over the side of the country, and they were interested in not doing the outcome thing, but rather they shared at regular stages through the process. And what they found was that lots of the teachers were on different points of the cycle, of the um, cycle, the practice to inquiry cycle. So some were planning at the point where some were completing. And actually having that more flexibility meant that that, that more, I suppose, real life cumulative learning in practice as it's happening was much more accepting in, and, and much more likely when you stopped trying to put in this moment where this is where we're going to share. Um, and I really like that. And it really made me think about how do we share? Um, and so they were using what we came up. So I was coaching them to, to think about the process and we came up with the idea of evocative objects. So an object that you bring to represent your inquiry it could be a piece of work, it could be a quote from a child, it could be a lesson plan, it could be a piece of evidence, whatever, whatever, it could be a photograph, but whatever is enough, is evocative enough to get you talking confidently and, and be an aid memoir to what you did for your inquiry or where you're at in the inquiry. So I think it's in process and outcomes, but also finding things that help you talk. And that's what the poster is all about in the end, it's about, about a tool to help people share and talk. Um, some of us don't need a poster, we can just talk. <laughs> I too have wasted many hours faffing around with um, poster formats and things. Yeah. Many, many hours lost to that and a few laptops probably almost thrown out the window at the same time. I, I like that idea of evocative objects and I like the, the cycle of that. And I think sometimes there's a temptation because schools have a certain flow and pattern to the year that we we think in that as a block and so we work within that and actually things could be on different time scales and there could be different starting points and different kind of middle points within that it doesn't always have to be it's June so we must do our sharing or something most definitely and I think again one of the misconceptions about preservation inquiries it starts in August and finishes in June um, and, and if you're the, the music teacher or the drama teacher and you're involved in the Christmas whole school production through you know that starts in October through to December well that is not the time for you to be doing your practitioner inquiry so I often say to those teachers abandon it unless it's about the production <laughs> abandon it and, and start in January there's no rules that say that it has to span the whole year um, there's no rules that say that it, it can't be one off moment you know there's some really interesting practitioner inquiries that are just about one key lesson and what happened in that lesson um, so again there's no prizes for size um, you don't have to do the whole school you don't have to do the whole year it can be one child and it can be one lesson um, and yeah just mm -hmm. calm down don't take over the world 
<laughs> so my last question, I feel like you've given us so much already, but my last question was going to be about, well, firstly, recognizing the great um, Twitter thread that you have, that you share kind of practitioner inquiry tips, and I know they're quite popular, and I know that's a great way for you to share kind of, I guess, principles or ideas or um, different different things that people can explore but, and you've you've shared so many in the conversation so far tonight but um, is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners by way of um, some top tips for practitioner inquiry? Top, top tips um yeah um to be honest those practitioner inquiry tips of the week are partly about me making research accessible and partly about me trying to um share what's in my brain i know i'm in a relatively unique position because i go into schools and i talk to teachers all the time and um, i run my modules in the university i'm working with doctorate students who are doing practitioner inquiry so I, i'm having conversations about practitioner inquiry all the time um i do things like this and 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 that gets me thinking and and so trying to answer those questions so those practitioner inquiry um, tip of the week on a Wednesday is always about the thing that I've been talking about most recently with okay. schools or teachers. It's been hard through lockdown because I haven't been having as many conversations with teachers and so that's um, been a bit of a challenge. Um, so yeah it is about doability, it is about manageability, it's, it's about trying to find those key messages because it upsets me when I hear people getting turned off practitioner inquiry because it's become an obstacle because it's become something they are being forced to do because it's taking up their Sundays when they shouldn't be doing it um, when it's become unconnected to student need and unconnected to what they're interested in and that and that's really sad because for me it is so fundamental as part of who I am as a teacher um that that yeah that that destroys me. so that's that was what that was about that was about accessing what's in my brain and trying to displace some of the myths what about i'm quite proud of myself that i've kept it going for over a year so yeah <laughs> it's, it's been going now for um since september 2019 and i kept it going through lockdown i keep on worrying that i'm gonna stop <laughs> having things to say <laughs> I'm sure you'll keep having things to say. Yeah. <laughs> as long as I talk to teachers. <laughs> yeah, as long as you talk to teachers, we're all good. What about NQTs? So, you know, NQTs will be out there at the moment, perhaps beginning to think about their um, practitioner inquiry projects this week, uh, this week, this year. Um, do you have any tips for them who are maybe, I, I guess it's a lot of what you've already shared, but just to kind of boil it down for them, what would help them with where they are at the moment and everything else they're trying to to juggle go with the thing that would be useful to know mm. try not to be steered too much by other people's agendas that's hard if you've got someone in power telling you you've got to focus on reading or you've got to focus on behavior or uh, uh, but but even those 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 steers that can come from the local authority or they can come from individual schools or mentors um, they don't see them as a as an obstacle see them as an umbrella term that you can still adapt you know there's not a classroom out there even in postgraduate world where i am where behavior is not something we need to think about mm -hmm. teachers are quite mis misbehave and you know <laughs> they, they know how to misbehave they, they've got expertise input um so um behavior is always something i have to think about i might think about it quite differently 
in a postgraduate classroom to what you might think about in S1, which will be very different again to what you might think about in P1. Mm -hmm. So, so they're umbrella terms. Similarly with reading, reading is something that we can interpret to, to address the student needs. So, so be powerful, be um, connected in how you think about what you want to know and how you want to know it. So that's the first thing. It is for you to decide what you want to research. The second thing I would say to them is trust your teacher instincts. Try not to be the researcher you think someone wants you to be, because that researcher is probably someone who actually is working in the university. You're not that person, you are teaching your classroom. And so see your classroom as evidence rich, see your classroom as somewhere where there is plenty of evidence without you collecting extra and, and use that as the basis to find an answer to this question that you have. Kate, we'd like to finish this evening by asking you three questions. Can I start by asking you what you wanted to be when you were growing up? Uh, rather, I wanted to be a teacher. However, my mum and dad were both teachers and told me and my brother, don't do something else. Oh, okay. <laughs> However, both me and my brother are teachers. Um, right. Not necessarily in school anymore, but um, we are both teachers. So. And your folks, what do you think was the bit they were advising you to, to guard against? What was I think a bit of the was, job. Yeah, I, I, to be honest, I don't. My mum moved into FE. She's an art teacher, so um, and I think that the the, the rigmarole of school that and that that was what they were both saying. Are you aware of how it takes over your life and 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 sort of the vocation aspect of it? Um, my dad was a reluctant teacher, to be honest, and and. So, but they were both teachers during the 70s and 80s through the teacher yeah. strikes in England. And I think it was a tough time to be a teacher. Yeah. Um, it, um, yeah, so I think that's where they were coming from. <laughs> Just shows yeah. like any teacher, not everybody listens to you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And what are you reading at the moment, either for pleasure or for work? Um, so I had to go look. Um, so <laughs> for work at the moment, I've just got um, James Mannion and Kate McAllister's book on fear is the mind killer, um, which is what the reason why I'm reading it is it's about learning to learn. So I spent the first 10 years of my research career working in partnership with teachers to explore this thing called learning to learn. It yeah. then got buried with the new Labour government really as a concept and was seen um, and it went out of fashion but it's still there in metacognition and I think what James Mannion and Kate do is is start to unpick the fact that things like the EF toolkit is saying metacognition and feedback well that's actually what learning to learn was all about so I'm, I'm, I haven't read it I've just started it I know he does refer to our project as well because I've had a number of chats with him so it's it's one I've been looking forward to so it arrived through the post yesterday yeah. Um, and for, for pleasure, anything with dragons and magic. <laughs> nice. nice. And the trouble of asking these questions about what people are reading is I start adding more books to my reading list yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, I think we, we need a six month sabbatical, Sarah, to take all these book recommendations on board. Uh, well, six months. <laughs> thanks, thanks for that one, Kate. And let's finish then by asking you, you've given us so much food for thought. 
this evening, I think. But is there anything, uh, any quotation or message that you would like to leave listeners with in particular? I, I thought about this long and hard um, because I wanted to be dead clever and but I'm not one for remembering. My brain doesn't remember quotes. I know that there's a good one. I often retweet ethics with in bricks, which is the Lego ethics sort of um, commentary. And they could probably say it much better than I do. So, so I would go back on one of my mantras, which is if it's taking up your Sunday afternoon and you're not enjoying it, scale it back, calm it down, refocus on something that is connected and based within your teaching. Practitioner inquiry is not about adding to your list of things to do. I think that's a great mantra for everything in life, never mind just <laughs> practitioner inquiry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think you're right. Wise, wise words indeed, Kate. Thank you so much for your input this evening. Great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode and please join us again for the next one. In the meantime, you can get involved with the conversation via Twitter or by seeing the episode notes for our contact details. Thank you again from both of us. Stay safe and take good care.